0: Is Biden um currently expected to, to do another term? Is is Trump
1: coming back? I think Donald Trump will, will run again in 2024 and he would be the favorite for the, the, the GOP nomination. And as for Biden, most presidents run for re-election, and I that would be my base case.
0: Even even at the the ripe old age of what will it be 82, 83? You know, with someone
1: like Biden I, the guy's been running for public office since he was in his 20s. I think he's a career politician. Career politicians run for office. Well,
0: you heard it here first. We're going to get a Biden-Trump repeat uh, come 2024. Welcome to The Pin Factory, the Additive Issues podcast. My name is Matthew Lesh. I'm the head of research at the ASI. In this week's episode, I'm joined by my co-host and the head of program, Daniel Pryor as well as Dr. Tyler Goodspeed, the Kleinheitz Fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University, the former Chairman of the President's Economic Advisors, and perhaps most importantly, a Senior Fellow at the ASI. In this week's episode, we're going to be discussing Trump's economic policy, the state of the global economy, and transatlantic
2: relations. Well, our guest in today's podcast had what can only be described as a front row seat in the Trump White House as a key advisor to the president on economic policy. And I guess just to get started, uh, how just generally as a work environment did you find working in what was by many reports quite a a chaotic or at least fast changing administration? So it's funny
1: because uh, certainly when it came to the economic team, we actually had quite a bit of stability. So over the four years, we had one treasury secretary, we had one commerce secretary, we had one US trade representative, we had one Director of the Office of Trade and Manufacturing. We had two National Economic Council directors. So the National Economic Council sort of handles, uh, coordinates economic policy making across agencies, and and sort of makes sure that there's a consistent message. Um, and then at the Council of Economic Advisors, we actually had a lot less turnover than than previous administrations. But uh, in terms of you know working in the White House, I mean, I I realized very quickly that you know in 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 Washington, D.C., no one belongs in a room uh, and people have to want you in, in the room. And I found that people wanted the Council of Economic Advisors in the room when we were there providing sound economic analysis, a, a good analysis of, the, of, data, of economic data as it came out, sort of calling balls and strikes. Because if we weren't there doing that, then there were plenty of other politicos. Uh, who who could you know offer political advice? So I generally found that you know so long as we we stuck to our our job of of delivering good economic analysis, um, you know people wanted us in the room.
0: Did Did you feel that some of the analysis that, that the White House was a bit like a court that there were different factions vying? I guess as as some, it was always the case to some extent for the, the president's ear, um a, a challenge when it when it came to economic policy with reports all sorts of different views with respect to, let's say, uh, free trade or market economics?
1: So the way it works in, in what worked in the Trump White House, and, and I think works in the way it works in most White Houses, is you try and resolve as many, as, as many disagreements as possible at the staff level, at the working level. Um, and if you can't resolve everything, then the unresolved issues get kicked up to the deputies level, so the, the number twos at the at the relevant agencies and if the deputies can't work everything out then it gets kicked up to principals. um so that would be you know with, when it comes to economic issues you know the treasury secretary uh, myself as chairman of the council of economic advisors and, you know if there was a trade issue bob lighthizer at the u.s trade representative um and if the principals can't uh can't sort everything out then it, it goes to the president and you know sometimes you argue it out in in the Oval, and I can certainly say that that President Trump kind of liked to see um, different views uh, strenuously debated, and um, and then you know the decision is made.
2: And when it comes to kind of your time there, what do you think were your biggest key economic achievements, or at least the the White House and the administration's biggest economic achievements? So I
1: think it has to be the, the 2017 tax law and the effects of that on business investment, on labor force participation, and ultimately on, on wages. So I think when we chatted a, a few months ago, I noted some of the some of the real wage gains that we were observing in the aftermath of the 2017 tax law. We were seeing three-quarters of the flows of, of people coming into employment were individuals coming in from out of the labor force and a lot, and we saw investment rise uh, 10% above pre pre 2017 tax law trend and so you add all that up and you know i think it was a pretty big shift from what had been the, the slowest economic recovery in, in post war US history
2: yeah i, I remember when uh, you spoke previously to one of our webinars mentioning kind of just the sheer scale of the success there in um, especially on the lower end of the wage distribution um but I guess as well as the, the, the tax cuts are kind of what, one of the key headline things, right? But you worked on a lot of other stuff that, while you were there too, a lot of different areas as well, um, student loans, for example. Are there any kind of things that maybe were slightly more under the radar that you're still you know, very very proud of that maybe didn't make the headlines as much?
1: Yeah, so I mean, there was a lot on the, the deregulatory front. There was a lot, certainly in the COVID response, I mean, things like uh, some of the deregulatory things that we did there in terms of, of expanding, tele- relaxing rules re- pertaining to telemedicine, uh, which served the, the public health objectives, uh, and also relaxing restrictions on scope of practice so that you know, registered nurse practitioners could provide healthcare services so we weren't inundating the healthcare system precisely when we were facing you know, a public health emergency. But then pre-COVID, I think one one achievement that doesn't get enough coverage was our 2018 Economic Growth, Regulatory Relief and Consumer Protection Act, which among other things was designed to to start moving away from the sort of one size fits all approach of of the Dodd-Frank Act. So we were basically trying to allow um, financial institutions, particularly smaller institutions, to, to simply maintain higher capital ratios rather than to be imposing the same stress tests and the same risk-weighted capital ratios on hundreds of financial institutions, uh, which runs the risk of sort of killing diversification within the banking industry.
0: Something you've talked about before, Tyler, is just the kind of quiet deregulatory approach of the Trump White House. I'm wondering if you, um, what kind of impact that had? We have a lot of debate in, in the UK post-Brexit, about, and we got um, uh, Lord Frost's Brexit Opportunities Unit, which is meant to kind of go through and get rid of unnecessary red tape and regulation that's holding back the UK economy while still holding up standards. But you kind of have this inevitable issue that when regulation is in place, the default is just to keep it there. It's it's, it's never um, in a deregulatory direction. And in fact, not just leave it there, but kind of add more regulation over time. Um, it, the, the politics of regulation is, is, is very much in the... Um, regulatory direction. And, and you've, you've seen that historically, but I, I think from from Trump's experience that there, there was a, a kind of pause in, in increasing regulation just, just over that period, especially comparatively to the Obama
1: administration. Right. So I mean, I think one thing that does help are having rules. So we had not only a sort of one in, one out, or one in two out, but we also had um, rules pertaining to regulatory costs. Um, so we actually had a, a net reduction in the overall cost of regulation. Um, but I think what's, what's key is actually having people who know costly regulations that can be identified and, and removed. And so we, we benefited from the fact that we had Russ Vaught uh, over at the Office of Management and Budget, and, and he came from, from the think tank world within D.C., and a lot of his team Ah, uh, just knew how to identify a lot of these rules. Um, so I think that's that's sort of an area where where the likes of of ASI and and others can can be particularly valuable.
2: Is that a case where you have you have a few people that know a lot about kind of regulations that need to be scrapped or changed in a very specific area, or are there more kind of generalists in in those areas who just know a whole swathe of different things that need to be uh, looked at again?
1: I, th- I think the, the specialization does help a lot, and I'll give a couple of examples. One was what former FDA, Federal Food and Drug Administration Commissioner Scott Gottlieb did in terms of removing a lot of regulatory barriers to the entry of new generic drugs, and you know just one or two new generic drug entries into a into a, a prescription drug space is does does has a tremendous effect on on price. And so we actually saw for the first time in the history of the CPI series for pharmaceutical products under the Trump administration, we actually saw the, price, the relative price of prescription drugs, uh, pharmaceutical products decline. Yeah. And another example would be, uh, I would say, uh, there had been a rule change under the Obama administration pertaining to uh, internet service providers that basically force consumers to do an opt in rather than an opt out. And it turns out that a lot of consumers actually wanna be able to pay with their data. Um, So we got rid of that rule. And uh, if you look at the cost savings uh, for for internet service, uh, it actually, there was a big decline. And that's the kind of thing that I think uh, requires a lot of, of special knowledge. And then i guess the third example would be the the operation warp speed uh where we really benefited from secretary azar's knowledge of the the vaccine process and the the approval process and ultimately that was delivered and still is to my knowledge that is still being delivered under an emergency use authorization
2: and so one of the things that kind of comes up Quite often when I speak to friends who are interested in politics but maybe aren't the biggest fans or weren't the biggest fans of Trump's economic policy, they'll try and make the argument that actually a lot of the growth, whether it's wage growth, uh, general GDP, economic growth, productivity growth, etc., that was all secular, you know, this was all completely exogenous to the policy process and it could have been expected anyway. So we, we sh- shouldn't place too much uh, emphasis on the role of, say, the um tax cuts in 2017 what do you say to someone who has that kind of mindset is there something you can point to and say no it was say for example it was it was clearly full expensing that resulted in x wage increase as opposed to just generally this is a trend that can't really be budged by policy
1: so i think there are two things i would point to one is you can estimate a trend in the growth rate of investment you can you can estimate a trend in the change in labor force participation a trend in payroll employment growth you can project that trend you know estimate a trend over the whole expansion period through 2016 or even into 2017 project that trend into 2018 2019 and then just calculate the difference between the, the trend projection and an actual and whether you're looking at investment, whether you're looking at employment growth, whether you're looking at wages, we were above trend. Uh, and in a lot of cases, you can also reject the null hypothesis that there was no slope change. But you don't have to take my word for it um, and because you can also just go back and look at what respected forecasters were predicting before these these legislative changes, and you know, take the 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 Congressional Budget Office, the nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office, in their final pre uh, Trump administration forecast, uh, they they made a whole bunch of projections, and the U.S. economy ended up adding seven million jobs, which was five million more jobs than they had, than they had projected, uh, and in fact, in the first two months of 2020 alone, so just before. COVID hit, uh, the US economy added half a million jobs, which was more in two months alone than, than the Congressional Budget Office had been projecting uh, before the tax cuts.
0: Do, do you then think, just just based on that kind of economic legacy, that Trump would have been reelected if it wasn't for COVID? There wasn't the whole mess and uh, reckoning, as well as kind of questions about competence, uh, often with respect to COVID, uh, up until I guess Operation Wartsteed came to, to happen?
1: I, I think he would have been nearly impossible to beat uh, had had the pandemic not hit, and in part because you know you look at five, half a, half a million jobs added in, in two months in 2020, it gets harder to add jobs the deeper you get into an expansion. So the fact that we were still adding 250,000 jobs a month is really substantial because just to you know just just to keep pace with population growth, you you need about 90,000 jobs. So we were we were adding about 150,000 jobs on average in excess of population of population growth. Um, and then you know you so that was the labor force if you look at GDP um, just before just before covid hit the US economy was 1.2% bigger than CBO had been projecting, 300 billion dollars uh, and the unemployment rate was was almost uh, was was 1.4 percentage points uh, lower than than what what CBO had been projecting.
2: And just a a final kind of question on that front, though. This comes from a a different set of uh, friends with probably more similar sort of views to myself and libertarians tend to to worry about the the kind of fiscally conservative credentials here. Um, And this is actually something that came up as well when we tried to sell full expensing amongst other policies to bodies like the IFS in the UK, uh, where it might be, oh, these... You know, tax cuts, they might be great, they might be pro-growth, etc. But they're going to end up costing a lot and and, and ending up adding to the budget deficit. And it seems like this has at least historically been more of a a viewpoint in the UK compared to the US where people on the the center right or free market leaning have tended to be more concerned about deficit impacts even when it comes to tax cuts. What would you say to to that sort of uh, deficit hawk faction about the fiscal impact?
1: I would say that The 2017 tax law was scored as a $1.5 trillion net tax cut over 10 years. Of that $1.5 trillion, $330 billion, uh, was, was corporate provisions, business provisions, almost $600 billion was the doubling of the child tax credit and expansion of the eligibility for the child tax credit and while there may be good reasons to do that and actually the way we designed the expansion of the child tax credit it, it did serve as a marginal uh incentive for employment um but i don't think you're getting a whole lot of growth from that and so and in fact most of the growth coming from the 2017 tax law was from that 330 billion dollars uh, in a net tax cut on the business side and it's not that i mean it, it, given the the growth uh, coming from that, that $330 billion tax cut, you actually, it's not hard for the business provisions to be paying for themselves. It's more on the individual side uh, that I don't think, I don't think growth is, is, is giving you back the, 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 the static revenue loss. But my, my advice would be, you know, that sound tax policy is generally speaking to, to lower marginal rates, lower effective marginal rates, and, and broaden the base. So one of the things that we did on the, 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 the corporate side, and I think we, we, it would be good to have more of that, is we, we lowered the, rate, the corporate rate, we introduced full expensing for equipment investment, we also limited a lot of big, very costly deductions, um, uh, you know, basically their tax expenditures. So that includes things like um, uh, the interest deduction, and a couple other big, very costly deductions in there. And on the individual side, similarly, we eliminated a lot of really expensive tax expenditures like the deduction for state and local taxes, and we plowed those savings into lower marginal rates. So that would be my advice, is try and eliminate a lot of tax expenditures and plow the savings into, into marginal rate reductions.
2: Well, from the economic past to the economic present, a slightly less Uh, Excellent economic present, we might say. Uh, Let's move on to our next section on the state of the global economy and US inflation.
0: In the UK, inflation has reached a 10-year high at 4.2%, while the latest stats out of the Eurozone show 4.9%. In the US, it's an even more eye-watering inflation figure, a three-decade high at 6.2%, according to the Consumer Price Index. This is kind of raising a lot of questions about government stimulus, monetary policy, and the ability for the economy to successfully recover from COVID. Uh, I suppose the the first central question here is, what do we think is actually driving the inflation? There seems to be a a general assumption in the policy debate, I think, that this is basically temporary supply-side factors that are coming out of COVID. we, we, We saw restraints on the ability to produce um, we've seen huge increases in shipping costs as well as kind of energy issues, but more or less that should kind of disappear pretty soon uh, because uh, as we, the, the supply side brings back up capacity, um, inflation will will reduce. Are you kind of uh, relatively optimistic, Tyler, when it comes to inflation or are you a bit more of a pessimist and think it's, it's going to stick around for a bit longer?
1: Look, I don't think we're at the moment in for do for in for a re, rerun of the 1970s. But I, I am very concerned that we are going to see a protracted period of, of elevated inflation. And thus far, wages have not been keeping nominal wage growth hasn't been keeping pace with with inflation, at least in the US. In terms of what's driving it. Yes, we have had multiple supplies, adverse supply side shocks, certainly in 2020. A lot of, and even today, factory closures, port closures, port disruptions, uh, particularly in China, but also elsewhere. Still 1.1 million Americans report that they didn't look for work in the past month because of, of the pandemic. Uh, but we've also had a lot of uh, policy decisions that have exacerbated some of those supply side disruptions because we had in the U.S., um, Supplemental federal unemployment insurance benefits that were extended well into 2021. Now we have an extant, expanded child tax credit that doesn't have work requirements. And then we also had a $1.9 trillion COVID package in March 2021 that included another round of economic impact payments. So you just had this massive stimulus to demand at the same time that supply was, was, was seriously constrained. Now, ordinarily, you know, we might see some of that in relative prices. The only way in which you get the the overall price level rising is that the monetary authority accommodates it. And that's what the Federal Reserve has done over the past year and a half.
0: Yeah, are you tell you you ultimately are a monetarist in the sense that inflation in, in the Milton Friedmanite terms is always an and everywhere a monetary phenomenon that you have, although in the the, the previous um, quantitative easing you, you didn't see uh, monetary expansion in the same way be- because the, the the Fed and the, the central banks effectively bought back what they were putting in. Um, whilst during COVID, there was a little bit more direct effectively buying government bonds on the secondary market, which meant the the, the central banks were funding government spending. And the, that's, you know, Venezuelan territory if it's done to the extreme. And, and therefore, monetary policy is going to be the ultimate question here. It's, it's not if, but when you're going to see higher interest rates because that's, the only way to get back to it. I think, uh, as Tyler Cowen recently had a Bloomberg piece saying, Milton Friedman's coming back in the sense that everyone's response to inflation is a question about when the feds are going to raise interest rates, which is effectively the premise that inflation is t- to ultimately, to some extent, or at least a large extent, can be solved through limiting uh, the-, the money supply. So you, you don't have as-, as much money chasing as few goods.
1: I think you raise a very good point, Matt, because it- it's very risky to be driving... By just looking in the rearview mirror and the aftermath of 2008 2009 in the aftermath of 2008 2009 we yes with one hand the fed was engaging in quantitative easing but with the other hand it was raising it was introducing interest on excess reserves so a huge chunk of the that that expansion it just ended up back the fed parked as as bank reserves and then also with dodd Frank. Uh, You had the increase in capital requirements. So, you know, banks were holding a lot more capital. I think it's very risky to be to be using that as a paradigm today, especially when when we've already seen that, whereas after 2008, 2009, M2 money supply didn't really increase that much over trend. Whereas in the past year and a half, we have seen M2 just absolutely spike. And that is that is money that is out there. I mean, that is that is money in deposit time accounts. So I think this is, a, this is a very different situation we're in from, from the aftermath of 0809.
0: For, for those who are listening who aren't economists, uh, M2, M1 money supply, what, what, is, what does that actually mean? What, what are the different um, levels of money supply?
1: So M1 is sort of your base money supply currency. Uh, checking deposits, I think, are in there. M2 includes things like uh, certificates of deposit, savings accounts, uh, money market mutual funds, I think, are in there. So it's just a broader measure of, of, of overall money supply.
0: Got it, got it. And the, the key factor is the fact that um, and we saw a lot of reporting about this in kind of an optimistic sense that uh, after, well, uh, towards late COVID, people had huge amounts of savings, um, particularly people who'd been working through the pandemic, hadn't had the same opportunities to spend more cash in their bank accounts. And as the economy's reopened, um, you know, just as one micro example I think about in the UK is if you want to go to try to go to a holiday domestically, you're just paying an, an arm and a leg because people have all this money saved they haven't been on holidays for ages. There's huge demand, particularly over the summer, to, to, to holiday in the UK because people didn't want to take the risk of going overseas, so you're going to inevitably have kind of a, an, an inflationary impact. i um, just kind of moving on. Do you think there's going to be a kind of longer-term effects here? Are you, you relatively optimistic? I, I think there's one narrative at the moment which says, you know, inflation, um, people don't feel good about the economy, things aren't going that well, but on the other hand, though, unemployment's kind of shot back down, um, it seems the economy is mostly recovering. I suppose much quicker than people might have suspected from COVID, with the exception of these kind of supply side issues. Are you a, a relative, I guess, optimist or, or, or pessimist when it when it comes to economic growth?
1: I would say at the moment I'm I'm leaning more toward the pessimistic side because I see the the, the long run potential. Certainly, the U.S. economy having been adversely impacted by my estimations, we've had 1.5 million early retirements. Those are very skilled folks uh, who there's a good chance are not coming back. I think a lot of the transfer programs that are going to be introduced in the new Build Back Better bill are are going to decrease labor force participation. We also in the US have a cumulative $1.8 trillion shortfall in business investment since the pandemic began. That, by my estimates, is going to reduce the potential of the U.S. economy, potential output of the U.S. economy by about 1%. So I think we have all these things on the supply side that are just ticking down the, the supply side potential of the U.S. economy. At the same time, that demand is, is, is still quite elevated. And as you pointed out, Matt, uh, there's about two trillion, a little over two trillion dollars in, in sort of excess savings that, that U.S. households have, have accumulated. And as they, you know, they're going to eventually spend that down uh, on, you know, spend it on against a supply side that that is constrained.
2: It does seem like a lot of the price level increases are concentrated, at least in the case of the U.S. So you've got a lot more inflation in, say, uh, restaurant and the hospitality sector, right, compared to, or rather you've got a lot more inflation in, in white goods, right? <laughs> I'm trying to remember which way around it is because you've got this... Um, this situation where consumers they still aren't going to restaurants or hotels as much as they were pre-pandemic but what they are doing is they're spending or they're beginning to spend a lot more on your kind of your amazon shop and things like that
1: yes so we've seen a lot of goods inflation goods price inflation for precisely the, the reason you you note um i think there are a number of shoes that are yet to drop so we have seen huge increases in home prices and new rental agreement prices that has not yet filtered through to owner equivalent rent or uh, rent for continuing leases and rent is ultimately 40 percent of uh, the consumer price index so i think when we start to see rental price rents go up um You know used cars have been pretty heavily impacted by supply chain disruptions you know used cars eventually because sorry and new cars as well Uh, new cars have been severely disrupted by chip shortages Well, new cars eventually become used cars um so i think that's a that's a sort of supply side uh, pressure that we're that's going to be with us for a while and you know a lot of these these labor shortages um you know are going to continue to to drive up prices because we've seen among small businesses, even just among small businesses, so these are firms that we don't tend to think of as having a lot of pricing power, between 60 and 70 percent of small businesses that have reported raising compensation in recent months so between 60 and 70 percent of them report that they are passing that on to prices. So I, I think that there's just a lot of pressure uh, built into the, into the pipeline now.
2: And it, it does seem like there's some at least initially positive. Figures coming out around unemployment or, or employment, more specifically, though, right? You, you're starting to see people burn through some of those accumulated savings that they had during the pandemic, and the, the incentive to re-enter the workforce seems to be higher. At least, I think October's uh, unemployment figures were a little bit better than they were before.
1: Right. So the unemployment figures are are getting close to where we were uh, pre-pandemic. And we had remember, we had been at or below 4% unemployment for, I think, 24 months uh, before the pandemic hit and not a sign of inflation and inflation expectations were stable. They were even ticking down. I think that was in large part because of the surge in business investment and also the fact that we were pulling you know, million, literally millions of individuals back into the labor force. So the, the prime age workforce actually increased uh, by 2.3 million. Uh, over the, the, the three years through, uh, through the end of 2019. But today, yes, the unemployment rate has been has been coming down, but a lot of that is, is in part because we haven't, labor force participation hasn't recovered. And so the, the labor force participation declined substantially in March and April of 2020. By August of 2020, we had recovered about half of that decline since August twenty twenty, labor force participation hasn't recovered at all.
0: So, just on the the Biden administration, um, I, I think you've been critical already about some of their quite expansionary policies. Is there anything you think that they're doing well? Is is there something that you said, "Geez, I wish we'd done that um, instead of them," uh, and and they've beaten us to it, or is it all bad? Um, I've been
1: asked this before, and I've I mean, I've really tried genuinely hard uh, to to to, to to come up with a, an example, but I, I will say n- there's very little good that I see coming out of the Biden economic uh, agenda. The one thing I will say is that here again, this is, I, I'm not even sure I can say this. I, early on, I did like that the Biden administration was at least in language engaging with European partners and other global partners. Um, you know I think that's important and I th- I think we you know we worked a lot with 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 global partners I think we could have just in the, in our the way we talked about it we we could have been uh, a little bit more diplomatic but um, but even but now I mean I'm not even sure that that is true with the Biden administration I mean they they've they've managed to to uh, upset a lot of of international partners
0: Well on that note let's let's have a bit of a think about uh, transatlantic relations
2: The special relationship is an often used and often mocked way to describe relations between the United Kingdom and the United States. But with tension points constantly arising from Suez Canal and the Vietnam War historically to Northern Ireland today, how special is the special relationship? And I I guess to start off how often did you hear this term when you were in the white house the the special relationship is this a kind of fiction invented by brits who still desperately want to cling on to global relevance or is this actually a, a phenomenon that you've seen tyler so
1: i didn't hear the term very often but in my experience there was just there was a level of communication between myself and my White House colleagues and counterparts in the UK that was not matched with any other with any other global partner. And I think that there was a level of, of just trust and goodwill that is is again a level above other other partnerships. And certainly it was one thing that I wish that we had been able to to get over the finish line in term one and if there's a term two i would certainly hope to get it over the finish line would be not only a, a uk us trade deal but also just a lot more integration uh, economic integration with the uk because i think you know economic integration with like-minded partners is uh, has a lot of benefits
2: and do you see uh, the biden administration potentially beating that second term to it in terms of the trade deal. Certainly, I'm, I'm fairly skeptical of anything on that front.
1: Yeah, I, I would be skeptical of they about them getting getting a deal done. I think that their, their interests and their priorities are elsewhere.
2: Uh, and moving on to the, the kind of the general, the Biden administration's general attitude towards US-UK relations, what did you make of their kind of intervention in uh, the Northern Ireland and Brexit kind of drama that's been going on here? I think
1: those sorts of interventions are are best conducted privately, quietly, through diplomatic channels.
0: Yeah, no, I'm kind of interested in mm-hmm. unpacking what, what the relationship means a little bit more. So you talk about, you know, you're talking a lot to, to uh, your, I guess, British counterparts about economic policy. Um, I, I presume, although not necessarily your field, it's, it's kind of similar across it, in, intelligence and defence issues. Um, do you think it's it would be similar in practice in the biden white house or do you think that there'd be a bit of a weaker relationship um across the pond there's a bit of discussion about how well although trump was was pro britain and pro-brexit um uh, biden is is more of a, a traditional say like globalist and outwardly looking at least he's meant to be more of a globalist now outwardly looking um on an issue like climate change it seems like there's a lot more alignment between boris johnson and and joe biden than there was necessarily between um, Johnson and, and Trump, how do, you, how do you kind of, I suppose, rate
1: the, what, what is the nature of the relationship? So I can't speak so much to, to the, the nature of the relationship because I don't have you know too much visibility into the Biden, the Biden White House, but I can say that I think the, the Biden administration will likely be speaking a language that resonates with British counterparts, and, and for that matter, other European counterparts more generally. Uh, because one thing that I found during my time at the in the White House was that a lot of, of OECD partners, particularly in Europe, wanted to talk a lot about inequality and climate change. And that's not those are not issues that the Republican administrations are, are always comfortable talking about. But I actually think that one of my regrets is that we didn't talk about them more because I think that we had a terrific, uh, a, a terrific record to share on both fronts uh, insofar as wage, income, and wealth inequality in the United States were declining after the 2017 tax law. And on the climate front, the United States economy, thanks to the shale revolution, had reduced greenhouse gas, uh, CO2, and particulate matter emissions by more uh, over over the sort of 2005 to 2018 time period than the EU. And we had, because we had done it through innovation, we, we achieved those reductions at lower cost, which, oh, by the way, disproportionately benefits lower income households for whom petrol and utility bills constitute a bigger share of disposable personal income.
2: I think that that's probably precisely the, the problem that you did it through innovation, and you didn't do it the right way, um, at least from the, the kind of domestic uh, political context and. The UK certainly, when it comes to a lot of uh, politicians and parties, the the best way to reduce inequality and to tackle climate change is, of course, with more state intervention, more subsidies, less deregulation, and, and whatnot. And that, I guess, the the narrative that you have just explained, which you know, which is true and which has been extremely successful, is just not something that is recognized enough, I think, in in Europe and the UK especially. I, Onto the kind of the U.S.'s grand strategy here, do you think that a lot of the the kind of foreign policy focus has, at least under Biden and potentially under um, President Trump as well, focus, has that shifted away from Europe and towards the uh, Pacific a little bit more, would you say? Or do you think that it's still very much Europe is the, the number one kind of focus?
1: Well, I think it's it's just a, rea- a geopolitical reality that that China is uh, an economic and strategic uh, challenge, and I think uh, you know it's it's not my area of expertise, but I think certainly uh, U.S. national security policy is 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 pivoting and rightly so, um, but I think that there is so a role for. the the special relationship insofar as it exists. I mean, certainly we saw with AUKUS, which I think was a a very good thing that the the Biden administration did. And, uh, you know, I think there's there's an additional role for the the special relationship in terms of of how economic integration can complement global strategic priorities because, and I'll give one example, which is mutual recognition. So there are enormous gains to be had, gains gains of trade to be had from uh, liberalizing trade in services. So you have, with the UK and the US, you have two very high quality financial regulators in the Securities and Exchange Commission and the Financial Conduct Authority. Wouldn't it be great if, say, a, regu- a, a, a registered broker-dealer recognized by the FCA could sell broker-dealer services into the United States and vice versa? And not only would this have economic gains, it also could have some national security implications because, you know, now and then you might want to deny uh, bad Chinese actors access to to Western capital markets. And, you know, with with mutual recognition, you would be uniting two of the deepest, most liquid capital markets uh, in the world. And, you know, along the way, maybe you could invite Sydney along.
0: Yeah, it does. It does seem like there's a lot of opportunities in, in kind of economic integration for fulfilling kind of geostrategic aims, although, you know, we support free trade independently of, I guess, the the geostrategic conclusions just because of the, the consumer benefits. But if you think about, like you know, if you're dealing with China, which is, um, I suppose, taking an increasingly mechanicalist approach in respects to the, the, the Belt and um, Road Initiative, the, the BRI, which, which seeks to basically throw money at often less than democratic countries in exchange for quite questionable um debt arrangements and and building things that you'd, you'd never see built by western aid simply because you know a, a big freeway to the president's home city from the capital city isn't necessarily something that's got a huge economic benefit but i think at the same time if if the, the kind of western powers don't engage properly you, you ain't going to end up leaving a lot of parts of the developing world um for for china to, to dominate economically they're going to integrate in the kind of chinese sphere more more so than than the western sphere not necessarily that in the same way during the Cold War and the, the, the Soviet era that there was a, a proper separation between the spheres. I think there's, there's a lot more integration, um, for obvious reasons, but between the, the U.S. and, and um, UK or uh, and and the Chinese economies. But at the same time, if if we don't engage properly with um, some of the developing countries and, and give them favorable terms of trade, they're, they're not gonna they're gonna go off and, and trade with someone who we might not necessarily be as comfortable with them trading with, and the political influence. Of the people they're trading with will be negative for, for
1: well, i regions. mean i think generally speaking it's it's unwise to try to out china china uh or to try to adopt chinese uh approaches uh and you, you see this a lot certainly in the national security establishment that oh we, we you know we need an industrial plan we need uh you know this 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 subsidy or that subsidy i mean you you scratch uh you, you, you scratch a national security argument and oftentimes you'll find a whole bunch of mercantilists underneath there. Um, but, uh, no, I think at the end of the day, it's, it's, it's helpful to, to form clubs that others want to join. And, uh, you know, I think certainly beginning with high quality like-minded partners like the UK, like the, like Australia, um, you, you can set the standards, and then you can say to, to, to other global partners or potential global partners, look, do you want to be part of a club that respects data privacy, that has high uh, regulatory standards for good quality regulatory standards for in, in financial markets, um, et, et cetera? Or do you want to be part of, of, of a club that doesn't respect data privacy, that doesn't have consumer protections, that doesn't... Uh, you know, have have high quality uh, standards for, for, for financial markets and you choose.
0: Yeah, I mean, just 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 to clarify, I, I, what, what I what I mean by engaging is not to necessarily say that, you know, the US and the UK should start funding, you know, uh, silly public works programs. But I think that's exactly right in terms of that economic integration, give them access to the British economy. But I think more broadly, we've got this issue where um, a lot of the time in, in US and UK debate, the assumption is that, we should become a little bit more like China, let's say, with respect to industrial policy, that in order to compete with China, the, the government needs to massively fund semiconductors and, and become a little bit more authoritarian. Now, that seems quite contradictory to me. If, if we're going to beat China, we, we can't play by their game. We, we need to use the, the more powerful method, which is the, the the market's ability to innovate in order to, you know, quote, unquote, beat. Maybe in the end, we're all going to mutually benefit from the innovations. But if, if you're going to manage that, you, I, I get quite... I guess, frustrated by the idea that the UK or the US needs to be more China-like.
1: Right. I would give uh, two, two examples. One, if you, if you want to encourage uh, a lot of uh, innovation, continued innovation, introduce full expensing for research and development, intellectual property products and, and as well as new equipment and maybe even throw structures in there if you care about hard assets. And secondly, on infrastructure, you know, rather than engage in these sort of $1 trillion uh, federal bonanzas that very rarely yield a high return on investment, take a look at asset recycling uh, or public partner private, uh, partnerships, where basically you could have a small pot of, of federal government money that, and so states and local governments can lease out public infrastructure assets to the private sector. Um, At long leases, use the proceeds from those lease agreements to invest in new infrastructure assets, and the federal government can can sort of top that up as an additional sweetener and an additional incentive. Um, I think those, those those are two great free market uh, solutions for or, or ideas for for continuing to compete with
2: China. Yeah, it does in the UK, and I imagine the US as well feel like there's a, a battle over the you know the China hawk politicians' ears when it comes to, well, you could do all of the things that you, you've just mentioned to, to, quote unquote, beat or, or better compete with uh, with China on the global stage. But it does seem like there's a, a quite a strong faction, certainly in the UK, that goes down the kind of what you mentioned earlier, you know, scratch a national security measure and find mercantilism route. Uh, and it's important that when it comes to that battle that we are making the case for you know, Doing these things through market means through innovation, through deregulation, as opposed to, say, in the case of the UK, uh, beefing up some foreign takeover laws that needn't apply in a, a lot of cases and actually hobbling our own economy for very little geostrategic benefit. I know there's, there's a case in France recently uh, or a few years ago where I think a, a yogurt company, Danone, was... Um, uh, takeover was blocked on national security grounds for something like that. So clearly, there are cases, um, and and it's very important that we we look carefully when it comes to uh, kind of Chinese involvement in specific uh, very relevant markets. But a lot of the time, it's just used as an excuse for for broader protectionism and put under this general kind of anti-China stance. But I think on that note, it's probably time to bring this week's episode to a close um, and. Thank you very much, Tyler, for joining us. My name is Daniel Pryor. I'm the head of programs at the Adam Smith Institute. I've been joined by my co-host and our head of research, Matthew Lesh, uh, as well as our special guest, Dr. Tyler Goodsby, the Klein Heinz Fellow at the Hoover Institution, former chairman of the President's Council of Economic Advisors, and as we mentioned, a senior fellow at the Adam Smith Institute. If you like what you've heard, then please do uh, like and subscribe to us on your chosen podcast provider uh, thank you for listening and we will see you next week for more banter analysis